Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. This morning's scripture will be from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. I'll be reading from the ESV. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. On the screen, you can see uh, our occasional reminder that we do use the YouVersion Bible app here. With all the sermons that I preach, Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, uh, you can look up YouVersion, all one word, in the uh, app store of whatever kind of device you use. And uh, each Sunday, you can look uh, live, and you can look up Laverne COC, and there are notes that go along with, uh, with our lessons. So I just every now and then like to remind you all of that for those that, uh, that like to use electronic devices to help you in your studies. Uh, this year, the year of our Lord, 2023, our theme is for Him. And everything that we're talking about is about Jesus and our service to Him as our Lord and as our King. Jesus Himself says in John 14 and 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The apostles Peter and John arrested and beaten and tried before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 made the good confession concerning Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus our Lord says in John 8 and verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, that is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, you will die in your sins. These are not myths, not mere legends that we're teaching. We're not just talking about what gels with us or is comfortable with us or is consistent with our opinions or our culture or the way that we were raised. What we're talking about when we proclaim the testimony of Jesus Christ is the actual truth of reality. And the saddest thing in the world, I think maybe the ugliest work that the devil has ever done is in perverting religion and creating false religion in this world so that people will live their whole lives searching searching after God, seeking His ways, believing themselves to be right with God and headed for heaven in the end 
when they are not. And the fact of the matter is, the Bible teaches in no uncertain terms that you can be as just religious as you can possibly imagine. You can give your whole life to religious discipline in some way, some tradition, but if it is not through Jesus Christ and the revelation that God has given us about Him and His Holy Word, it is a waste of your time and it will avail you nothing. Our religion is not what makes us right with God. The blood of Christ is what makes us right with God. And the blood of Christ is what enables us to be religious in a way that God will accept. And so, brothers and sisters, it behooves us as God's people to learn how to make the case for the Messiahship of Christ. We need to be able to tell people why it is that we believe in and follow Jesus. We need to be able to tell people at least in, in practical terms what the Bible teaches about the truth of the gospel of Christ. In our series, Jesus is the Son of God, we've been focusing on the deity of Christ, the fact that He is God's divine Son, God being a man, and that that is a core truth of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And in fact, if Jesus is not both man and God, then the bridge between fallen and sinful humanity and perfect and holy God has not yet been built. But praise the Lord, it has been built. And Jesus is that bridge, our great high priest. And so we've spent the last two weeks talking about the objections that some folks in the religious world and some in the non-religious world have against the claim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And today we continue that. One of the objections that some folks in the religious world have to say is something like this. And they may say it 50 different ways, but in essence it says the same thing. How dare you say there's more than one God? And when we bring up this objection to the Messiahship of Christ, to the deity of Christ in specific, we're talking about Jews and we're talking about Muslims. Jews and Muslims hold to the doctrine of the teaching of monotheism, which we also hold to. That is the belief that there is only one God. The fact that there is only one God. But both Jews and Muslims, because of their rejection of the truth of Jesus, hold to what we might call singular monotheism. That is, they believe there is one God, and that one God exists only in the form of one person. One person. Whereas the Bible teaches us that there is only one God. The Bible teaches monotheism, but teaches us that the way that God exists is complex beyond human understanding. That from all eternity, the one God, the singular Godhead or Godhood, the singular deity, exists in the form of three distinct persons. The first person of the Godhead, God the Father, the ultimate authority of all authorities. Everything that God thinks and wills and does and has ever done and ever will do originates in the mind of God the Father. The second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, the eternal Word of God, the Logos, who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, uh, 1 and John 1, 14. And the third person of the Godhead is the Holy Spirit, proceeding from both Father and Son. He has taken all the truth that God the Father has delivered over to His Son and given Him authority over, and He has revealed that to us. And the end result of the Holy Spirit's work of revealing the will of God is, in fact, the 66 books of the Bible. This is the sword of the Holy Spirit of God. It is His primary means of working in this world and in this life. That is the truth 
of the one God. He is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. But in response to that objection that we're claiming that there's more than one God, we just have to say in whatever way is appropriate to the context to say it in, we never said any such thing. We have never said that there's more than one God. And in fact, to claim that there is more than one God is heresy from the Christian perspective. It is false teaching and it is paganism, polytheism, idolatry to claim that there is more than one God. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And he does not mean one person. Uh, one person doesn't have a conversation with himself in the sense that we see Jesus having a conversation with the Father. One person doesn't refer to himself unless, unless that person is mentally unstable and split personality disorder or something like that. One doesn't refer to another person in the third person like Jesus does in talking about the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16 if they are the same person. They're not the same person, but they are the same God. I'm just going to stop there and say, you don't understand how that works. And I don't understand how that works. Only God himself understand how, understands how that works. But it doesn't change the fact that God has revealed to us that that is the way that he exists and always has. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. And so we've never said that there's more than one God. And we would, we would utterly refute anybody claiming otherwise. The Jews, we have a lot in common with the Jews. We share the Old Testament, of course. That's what they would call their... Hebrew Bible, and it is the portion of the Bible written primarily in Hebrew. And as we agree that the 39 books of the Old Testament are Scripture, and they're definitely uh, authority from God, and they are to be interpreted properly and applied to Christian living, just the same as the New Testament is. And of course, we interpret the Old Testament through the New Testament as the record of the finished work of God. And we would claim and we would try to share and communicate to our Jewish friends that as much as we absolutely respect them as God's chosen ethnic group of people, and that's what they were and that's what they remain, that does not mean that they are God's chosen spiritual group of people because that group is delineated in, through faith in Christ and that alone. And so we respect Jews. We respect the place that God gave them in redemptive history. We love them just as God loves them and sent his son to be their Messiah before he was ours. Those of us that come from Gentile stock and root, and that's the vast majority of us. So we share the Old Testament and, and we should celebrate that. And it, at least it gives us a place to start to discuss our differences uh, with regard to Christ. Uh, but they reject the Trinity because, listen, not because the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't make sense. Not because the doctrine of the Trinity isn't even implied in the Old Testament, for it is. But they reject the doctrine of the Trinity because they reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And for that reason only. When someone comes to realize the truth about Jesus, they immediately are put in a position to accept the doctrine of the Trinity, even if they don't understand it. You don't have to understand it to be right with God. You simply must affirm the truth that he's delivered to us in Scripture. And the Trinity is one of those truths. And so what, where are the Jews? When they reject the New Testament, they reject Jesus, thus they reject the New Testament. The Jews as a people, the unbelieving Jews, are left with the condemnation of a law that they cannot keep. They can't keep it. Peter himself, in Acts chapter 15, standing before the Jerusalem council, 
when the early church was, was trying to discern the will of the Holy Spirit about the relationships between Jews and Gentiles in the church, Peter stood up, or James rather, the brother of the Lord, stood up and he said to the, the, the group that were assembled around him in Acts chapter 15 that, that we ought not to, to bind the law of Moses upon these Gentiles that have come to faith through Christ because he says in his own words, we have not even been able to bear this law. And in so saying, he's recognizing the truth of the matter. Law does two things. It identifies sin and condemns the sinner. That's what law does. The only way that a person can be justified by law is if they keep it perfectly. James 2 and verse 10, whosoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And that does not mean he's broken every commandment or she has. It means that they've broken the law. And the law, therefore, points its finger and says, you deserve to be punished. And brothers and sisters, we need to be able to say boldly in conversation with our Jewish friends, do you expect to be saved by following a law that commands that you keep all of God's commandments perfect, inside and out, beginning even with your motivations, and then that being expressed in the way that you speak and the way that you act? Do you expect that you're going to be able to stand before God perfected based upon law? Because that law is simply going to highlight all of your failures in the presence of the holy God whose just nature demands that those sins be punished. And so the Jews, unfortunately, are left with the condemnation of a law they cannot keep. No one other than Christ has ever kept it. They're left with prophecies they don't understand. And they're left with alienation from the God who in the ancient world chose them in Abraham above all of the other families of the earth. Brothers and sisters, if that isn't the work of Satan, I don't know what is. Muslims, on the other hand, we share a few foundational Bible stories, uh, though the differences uh, in the way that they tell those stories are, are definitely there. There's different, different details because of the sources that they've used, and I'll talk about them a little more next week, Lord willing. They affirm Jesus' Messiahship but don't understand what it means. Again, I'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. Though their theology depends upon the Bible, they claim it was changed. But I was going to talk both about Jews and Muslims today, but I decided that would take about 40 minutes. So I decided I would save the Muslims till next week, and let's talk a little bit about the Jews today. But first of all, let's affirm what we are saying and make sure that we all understand it and get it, hopefully in as simple a way as, as, we, can, as we can think it and put it. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus, when we say Jesus is the Son of God, we're saying what the Bible says about Jesus, that Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, and he, he is deity. And so we're affirming the doctrine of the Trinity. There is only one God. God is eternally three persons who share the one nature, essence, and function of the one God, the one Godhood, the one Godhead, or of deity. This is why God is love, 1 John 4 and verse 7, makes sense. Love is something that is shared between persons. It is an expression of unselfishness which implies the existence of another party whose needs you are willing to elevate above your own when the circumstances require it. Does that make sense? If God is love and if God is eternally unchangeable and the Bible teaches that God never changes because he is absolutely perfect in every way. 
And, and if therefore God is love, then this applies that there has been both sameness and otherness in the Godhead, in the Godhood from all eternity. In fact, from all eternity, the three persons of the Godhead have shared love for each other and been unselfish in their way of relating to each other, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is part of the root of why that statement, God is love, makes sense. God did not just become love when he created others to share himself with. God was already eternally being love because of the plurality of the persons in the Godhead loving each other unselfishly. And when we speak about Jesus' incarnation, the incarnation of Christ, the second person of the Godhead becoming man, we're not saying that a man became God. This is one of the primary objections that Muslims bring up. We're not saying that a man became God. We're saying that God became a man. And I would say to all of my friends who are Bible-believing Jews, at least Old Testament Hebrew Bible-believing Jews, and I would say to all my friends who are Muslims that are really striving to be loyal to God and obedient to God, to be submissive to God. I, I would ask you, believing in, in, in the omnipotence of God as you do, the Jews do, the Muslims believe in an omnipotent God, a God who is all-powerful, why should it seem so strange to think that an all-powerful God could become a man? If he chose to do so. There's nothing outlandish about the claim or about the expectation. It makes perfect sense, and it is, in fact, what the Bible teaches. More on that, Lord willing, next week. We simply affirm that Jesus is the Son of God because this is what the Bible teaches, and it is consistent with reality. I, uh, I, I found a, a website that I think is very interesting, one that I've done some exp exploration of, and you may want to as well, but it's called JewsForJesus.org. And this is a what we would call a Messianic Jewish website, or it's a website by Jews attempting to reach out to Jews, by Jews who have embraced Christ as Lord, who are trying to reach out to Jews who do not yet embrace Christ as Lord and Messiah in order to encourage them to embrace Jesus as Lord. That's the purpose of JewsForJesus.org. This site lists three categories of reasons why most Jews only uh, are, by, excuse me, let me start that over. This site lists three categories of reasons why most Jews don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And those three categories that they list are cultural, historical, and religious. So listen with me as we explore uh, some of these ideas. First of all, cultural. Many Jewish people will simply explain, quote, Jewish people don't believe in Jesus, end quote. It's just what they say. It's just their culture. It's what, what, what they're affirmed in their households as they grow up in in Jewish households that don't believe in Jesus. Uh, much of today's Jewish community headlines inclusivity as part of their worldview, but ironically, there's still one stigma that remains. For example, a recent post from Hayalma, the popular Jewish blog, boldly stated the only thing the extremely diverse Jewish community could all agree on was that, quote, Jews for Jesus aren't Jewish. So you see that there is cultural pressure within the community, the global community of Jews, that is, Jews that do not accept Jesus as Christ. There is cult cultural uh, prejudice and cultural pressure that is put upon people growing up in that community just to know, if we're Jews, just know this culturally, just as Jews know this, we don't believe in Jesus. And the boundary lines have been set by that community. If you decide that you believe in Jesus, we will no longer regard you as a fellow Jew. 
That's the pressure that comes from that community. And of course, that doesn't surprise us. Historical. Well, the historical situation is kind of ugly. And you can understand why Jews might have some, uh, some prejudices against Christians based upon the things that some people have done in the name of Christ over the course of history. The history between the church and the synagogue has been written in blood and punctuated with violence and anti-Semitism. As the church grew rapidly among Gentiles in the 200s through the 500s AD, it received much resistance from the burgeoning rabbinical Judaism movement. Augustine, the 5th century Christian writer, wrote, Jews have been scattered throughout all nations as witnesses to their own sin and to our truth. Scatter them abroad, take away their strength, and bring them down, O Lord. Interestingly enough, I don't entirely disagree with Augustine, but I think the way that he ends the statement is probably unkind. And considering he wrote it publicly and published it abroad, it's not the best way to witness to uh, Jews as to uh, the truth of their Messiah. The Jews have been spread throughout the world because of their sins. That's a biblical truth. And it also testifies to the truth of the gospel. That's true. And with regard to their resistance to the kingship of Christ, I would pray along with Augustine, take away their strength and bring them down, O Lord, to their knees at the feet of Jesus. Not in death, not in ruin, not in torment, none of those things, but bring them to their knees that they might recognize the Lord's uh, the Lord's will for themselves and be saved. But continuing historical, on May 27, 1096, over 600 Jewish people were massacred in Mainz at the start of the First Crusade. In 1492, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella signed the order to banish Jews from Spain unless they converted to Christianity. Even the Protestant re reformer Martin Luther was unreserved in his venomous language, calling for the destruction of German Jewry. First, he said, set fire to their synagogues. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. Many uh, historians maintain that 15 centuries of anti-Jewish sentiment laid the foundation of the worst atrocity that the Jewish people have ever endured, the Holocaust. Holocaust survivor Rose Price recalls when the camp guards struck her, they told her they were following Jesus' orders. And so, well, what's the truth about these claims? Well, the truth is that those uh, Nazis were not following Jesus' orders. Whether they really believed that or not, it certainly wasn't true. Uh, the truth of the matter is that nothing in the Bible that Martin Luther was trying to restore as the singular and central authority in Christianity that it ought to be ever told him that he should go through Germany and burn down synagogues and raise the houses of Jews to the ground. The Bible never said that. So just because it's people that, that history thinks of as great representatives of the Christian faith that have done this evil against the Jews doesn't mean that that flows from what the Bible actually teaches about Christianity. In fact, I would say that many Christians over the history of the church have sinned against the Jews because of their anti-Semitic views. And the ancient world, uh, the ancient Christian world just... All, for all practical purposes, just stopped calling Jews Jews and started calling them Christ killers. And that is, was the common language throughout Europe for centuries of time. And so, listen, I, I, I mean, the truth of the matter is the Jews are wrong for rejecting Jesus. The truth of the matter is Christians, even if they're misguided in the way that they think they should act, have embraced the Son of God and, and, and are on the right path in that regard. Uh, but we can understand why the Jewish community today might be hesitant to think of uh, of the followers of Jesus as their friends. 
because history has so often proven otherwise. We need to understand and take this into consideration. We need to be able to defend the truth against the abuse of it as we discuss with Jews the Messiah that they need to come to embrace as their Lord. I almost skipped this one now. Religious. Many rabbis believe Jesus cannot be the Messiah because he didn't fulfill the job requirements. Quote, Judaism does not believe Jesus was the Messiah because he did not fulfill any messianic prophecies. I find that statement just really humorous. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, nor shall they learn war anymore. Isaiah 2 verse 4. Far from establishing world peace, Jesus said he came to divide father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Luke 12, 53. In fact, there has been more bloodshed in the name of Jesus rather than peace. How then can anyone argue Jesus is the promised Messiah according to the Jewish scriptures? Now, I share that with you because it is a quote from a Jewish rabbi that comes from this website, Jews for Jesus. Uh, and I just, I say it's humorous. It's, it's not humorous, really, that someone would reason so poorly. But, but it's humorous that someone would say Jesus didn't fulfill any messianic prophecies. Early in this series, we've already looked at, at, the, at a list, a representative list of, of messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Jesus fulfills line by line by line by line. You can take and extract all 300 plus of the specific messianic prophecies. You can put them down in a list. And you will find where the New Testament teaches us example after example of how Jesus fulfilled it. If you don't have any more time than just to read the Gospel of Matthew, if you've never read anything else in your Bible, this afternoon sit down and read the Gospel of Matthew and see what Matthew says, how many times he says, and so was fulfilled, and thus was fulfilled, etc. You check your center column references if you've got those in your Bible or the little numbers you can click on, hyperlinks in your electronic Bible, and you go back to those Old Testament passages and you see line by line by line by line how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. What's happening here is deception. In this statement, logical fallacy is being used to try to get people to sort of be bait and switched. This rabbi says Jesus didn't fulfill any of the messianic prophecies, for instance, and he lists one messianic prophecy that he thinks people will look around in the world and say, well, maybe Jesus didn't fulfill that prophecy. But because the Messiah is supposed to bring world peace, isn't that what Isaiah 2 Verse 4 says, yes, it's definitely what Isaiah 2, verse 4 says. I just listed this. I'm not going to get into this in detail because early in the series we've already established this. But I just want to show you several messianic prophecies that Jesus most certainly has fulfilled. He's the offspring of the woman. That's for sure true. The virgin birth, yes, that's true. Born in Bethlehem, of course, unquestionable. Well, there's the scene at his crucifixion, Psalm 22, and they pierce my hands and feet. They divide my garments, cast lots for them. Jesus obviously fulfills that. His death, burial, and resurrection... Of course, that's, that's our claim about Christ. Peace, peace. This is the one place that people stop when they're trying to reject the Messiahship of Christ. The, is world peace established yet? No, of course not. There's a real high-profile war going on right now in Ukraine, right? And that's not the only place in the world that violence is being inflicted by man, upon man, even in nations that are not at war like this one. There, there are acts of violence occurring that will occur today throughout this nation proving that world peace has not yet been established. And, well, certainly we're not denying that. But you've got to interpret the prophecies in their context. You see, the prophecy about world peace that is in Isaiah chapter 2 is, 
given some expansion in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, speaking of the child that would be given to us, who would be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. That statement, Prince of Peace, has a little bit of an explanation there. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It does not say that he will lift up the banner of his Messiahship and immediately all strife will cease. The Bible never says so. It says he will bring peace. And he is in the process of doing exactly that. Of the increase of his government, of the increase of peace, there will be no end. I'll tell you this, brothers and sisters, solidly. The world is much more at peace than it was a thousand years ago. The 1300s, thousand years ago, the Middle Ages, peace. Listen, not everything's right in our world today. None of us would argue otherwise. But that Christianity has made the world continually a better place in spite of our failures is undeniable to the person that reads the textbook of history with an open mind. Yeah, Jesus is fulfilling the Messianic prophecies exactly as the Word lays them out as needing to be fulfilled. And, and so there's enough, there's enough said there. I want us to consider the words of Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, the words of Peter. Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 24. Uh, Peter was, was preaching the gospel to Jews there, and he says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, that is, by crucifying Jesus, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, listen to this phrase, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. You see in this passage that Peter understands that Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment of all the Messianic prophecies. And, and in order to be the risen and exalted Messiah that he was when Peter said these words in Acts chapter 3, he already had to have past tense fulfilled the vast majority of them. But in Peter's preaching, he says, yes, there are still some things in these Old Testament prophets that have not yet been fulfilled. And Jesus has been received into heaven at the right hand of the Father to reign over this Christian era until the time comes when the last of those prophecies will be fulfilled. And so if unbelieving Jews want to try to destroy the case for Christ, You've got, to just, you've got to try to fight against the actual, listen, you've got to fight against the actual biblical case for Christ. Taking one messianic prophecy out of context and claiming that this is somehow a legitimate argument against the whole testimony of the Bible properly interpreted and understood is foolishness. And the claim, any claim against Christ coming from any area of the world is when all things are considered outright foolishness and so we have these three categories we have cultural we have historical we have religious the culture of the Jewish community strongly discourages open-minded consideration for the case for Christ and I find that to be very sad their history alongside Christians has served to strengthen the prejudices that underlie their cultural bias 
They misunderstand their own prophets due to extra-biblical expectations drawn more from their oral traditions than from Scripture. And so we have the problem that we have. But listen, there's some hope. I really enjoyed some of these writings that come from JewsForJesus.org. And I ask you to listen because these are some positive things that I think give us as, as the followers of Jesus, as spiritual Israel, some things to pray about. Listen, because the current Jewish community is so focused on inclusion, it has compelled them to consider Jesus and those who follow him in a different light. Many recent studies show this once firm perspective is now shifting. A Barna study of Jewish millennials carried on in 2017 found 20% of Jewish millennials surveyed responded, Jesus was, quote, God in human form who lived among people in the first century, end quote. Praise the Lord for that 20%. Amen? Brothers and sisters, that is the line, really, in the sand that we cross. When you cross from utter unbelief into saying, yes, I believe that Jesus is God being a man. You've taken the biggest leap that anyone must take in pursuing the life that Christ offers according to faith. Man, what a wonderful thing. A statistic that, as a, a statistic like this indicates that emerging generations of Jewish people in their 20s and 30s are deciding for themselves who Jesus is. Makes you, those of you that know what I'm talking about, makes you wonder about Romans 11. Enough said. You can ponder over that all that you want. But I think this is something for us to be praying about, brothers and sisters. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or seraph, there's a Jewish way of saying this, shall ever pass away from the Torah. They recognized Jesus was born to Jewish parents, was raised in a Jewish home in Israel, observed the Torah, and taught the nation of Israel as a rabbi. His teachings were not an attack on Judaism, but rather an authoritative, intelligent interpretation of the Torah and a critique of a religious system that was corrupt during his day. He said, do not think that I came to abolish the Torah, the law, that is, or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or seraph shall pass away from the Torah. Whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 15, 17 through 19, according to the Jewish translation of that passage. Following Jesus' teaching is a continuation of the Jewish faith, not an abandonment of it. That comes from that site Praise God for these Messianic Jews who are reaching out to their people and communicating these wonderful truths about Jesus our Lord and Savior. I pray that their tribe within the, those tribes increases mightily. So what is the gospel according to these Messianic Jews? I, I find they have a good understanding of it. Rooted in the Tanakh, that is the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, it is the proclamation of God's victory in Messiah. What is sin? It's not a guilt trip. It's a desire to replace God as the ultimate authority. Man, that is incisive right there. They are getting right to the heart of the message of the Old Testament. What is redemption? It starts with Passover, prefiguring God's ultimate plan for the world. It's true. Passover is one of the great prophecies of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Man, the gospel is Jewish. My king is a Jew. I bow down and kiss the wounded feet of a Jew. There is absolutely nothing about Christianity that is anti-Semitic. It is the essence of Judaism brought to its ultimate fulfillment. And that's why the New Testament teaches us that we are spiritual Israel. 
the continuation of the story of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and all of the prophets. Oh, I wish that our Jewish friends would come to trust in their Messiah as we do. Let's pray that that will become more and more of a reality as the days continue. Finally, brothers and sisters, I just want to leave you with this statement. And it really underlies everything that we're communicating in this part of the series. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, listen. For we did not follow cleverly concocted fables when we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitnesses of his grandeur. Eyewitnesses, Peter says. For he received honor and glory from God the Father. He didn't assume that based upon his own authority. He followed the authority of the Father. The Father has given Jesus his exalted position. When that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, quote, this is my dear Son in whom I am delighted, end quote. When this voice was conveyed from heaven, we ourselves, Peter says, we ourselves heard it, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Moreover, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. By this he means what was quickly becoming in his day, the completed canon of the scriptures, the Holy Bible, the Word of God. This is the prophetic word. It is the collection of all of the legitimate prophecies that God's Spirit has ever uttered through prophets that have walked this earth that he has chosen to preserve for us for our instruction in this life. And listen to what Peter says about it. He said, you do well if you pay attention to this, that is the Bible, as you would to a light shining in a murky place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. It's a poetic way to say it, and I'll explain that briefly in just a moment. Above all, you do well if you recognize this. No prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination, for no prophecy was ever born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What Peter is saying is this. He's saying that the case for Christ does not come from human ingenuity. It didn't come from a group of guys sitting around the table and trying to come up with an ingenious way to develop a new religion. The claim in Scripture is that the basis of the case for Christ is eyewitness experience. And what Peter is saying in this context is the claim of the apostolic generation that they heard these things and they saw these things ought to be enough to at least get you to crack open the prophetic word and see if its case is valid. Does that make sense? And brothers and sisters, we ought not to be ashamed to reach out to this world and say, listen, we're following the testimony of eyewitnesses who laid down their lives in affirmation of the truth of what they saw and heard. And if that doesn't at least earn your open-minded consideration of the prophetic word, there's nothing else I can say or do. Open up your Bible and see if it doesn't prove that it's God is God and that Jesus Christ is his son. And as his son, he is Lord. The Bible is the best proof of the Bible, brothers and sisters. Jesus is his own best proof. And if you will give yourself to prayerfully study the whole of the Bible, Old and New Testaments, you will come to understand the case for Christ. And you must, you will become a follower of Jesus like so many have done for centuries. Because, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the Son of God.
And that point is simply not debatable. You're here this morning and you've not yet made the good confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You understand you're old enough to be responsible for your own actions. You need to make that good confession. We'll give you the opportunity to do it today. The front pews are open. Having made that confession, we'll teach you how to turn your life over to God, to repent of sins, and to begin to live a life in obedience to Him. That will start with you taking the step of being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The baptistry here is ready. The water is warm. If you've not yet obeyed the gospel and you're subject to it, today is the day. And if you're a baptized believer that needs the prayers of this church, come. Together we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.